listening to Metamodernism, a production of the Golden Age Collection, a 501c3 nonprofit based out of sunny San Francisco, California. Welcome back to Metamodernism. I'm your host, Alexander Wool. And as promised, I have returned with another interview episode. Thank you for patiently waiting these past six months. If you're wondering where the vaporwave went, that's because we have a very special episode with a guest I've wanted to talk to ever since I started this podcast. Today, I'm talking with the great Kevin Crossman. Kevin has the distinct honor to be the first podcast guest I've interviewed in person, and I couldn't have asked for a better guest. More on him in a bit. But first, let's talk high level about some of the updates that have happened in the six months while I was away. Back in 2020, I had balked at Spotify's $100 million deal to bring Joe Rogan's podcast under their roof while simultaneously fighting changes that would earn artists one penny per stream. Now, two people familiar with the details of the transaction have told the New York Times that Spotify and Joe Rogan actually agreed to a three and a half year deal worth at least $200 million. Corroborating this, a former Spotify employee who spoke anonymously with Pitchfork has also confirmed that the agreement was worth over $200 million. I'll say it louder for those in the back. Spotify does not care about artists. Spotify only cares about making more money for themselves. If you're currently using Spotify, please consider canceling your Spotify subscription and actually support the artists you love by purchasing their music or buying a ticket to one of their shows. Next, I have an update to the Marvel movie rift within the film community. On a previous episode, I had quoted several actors and filmmakers with their thoughts on Disney's chokehold on the movie industry, and now Francis Ford Coppola has weighed in. Speaking with GQ magazine, he said, quote, There used to be studio films. Now there are Marvel pictures. And what is a Marvel picture? A Marvel picture is one prototype movie that is made over and over and over and over again to look different. Marty Scorsese says that the Marvel picture is not cinema. And he's right, because we expect to learn something from cinema. We expect to gain some enlightenment, some knowledge, some inspiration. Arguably, I don't know that anyone gets anything out of seeing the same movie over and over again, which is the Marvel movies, a thing that has no risk to it, end quote. And on a previous episode, I had quoted Ethan Hawke's distaste for Marvel movies. Since then, he starred in Moon Knight, a Marvel limited series for Disney+. As such, He's taken a more nuanced approach to Marvel. In speaking with Raywork Productions, he said, quote, I love superhero movies. I love art house movies. I don't think that there's a difference between high art and low art. There are movies that people put their hearts into, and there are movies that people just try to cash in on. And the ones that I like are the ones that people put their hearts into. And you can feel that in a superhero movie, or you can feel it in an art house movie. Logan, Doctor Strange, Dark Knight, These are my favorite superhero movies. They're great films, but they're not the only thing. And young people today are growing up thinking that's all that there is, end quote. And I agree with Ethan. One of the dangers of the streaming model is the tunnel vision that people tend to have when tied to one particular streaming service. Young people especially can have Netflix blinders that prevent them from being aware of films and TV shows that are not on Netflix. And as more and more studios start their own streaming services, Netflix's library of licensed content is dwindling. In creating its own original content, Netflix clearly prefers quantity over quality and have been deficit spending for years now in hopes that their library of originals will keep subscribers coming back. In 2021 alone, 
they spent $17 billion on original content. Which begs the question, is Netflix losing stream? They reported losing 200,000 subscribers last quarter, causing their stock to tumble 35%. Netflix has forecast a loss of 2 million global paid subscribers in the second quarter, and co-CEO Reed Hastings said the company was exploring advertising tiers in the next year or two. Netflix also announced a focus on cracking down on password sharing, and in addition to its 222 million paying subscribers, there were more than 100 million households that share passwords. Additionally, Netflix recently announced that they have cut 300 jobs in an effort to rein in the spending. Perhaps this whole peak TV thing isn't so sustainable in the long run. Moving along, I wanted to talk about the TikTok Chinese data breach. For years, TikTok has responded to data privacy concerns by promising that information gathered about users in the United States is stored in the United States rather than in China, where ByteDance, the video platform's parent company, is located. But according to leaked audio from more than 80 internal TikTok meetings, China-based employees of ByteDance have repeatedly accessed non-public data about U.S. TikTok users. The recordings, which were reviewed by BuzzFeed News, contain 14 statements from nine different TikTok employees, indicating that engineers in China had access to U.S. data between September of 2021 and January of 2022 at the very least. Despite a TikTok executive's sworn testimony in an October 2021 Senate hearing that a, quote, world-renowned U.S.-based security team, end quote, decides who gets access to this data. Nine statements by eight different employees describe situations where U.S. employees had to turn to their colleagues in China to determine how U.S. user data was flowing. U.S. staff did not have permission or knowledge of how to access the data on their own, according to the tapes. And we have a late-breaking update regarding this issue. I was just about to publish this episode, when this morning, June 29th, FCC Commissioner Brendan Carr issued a statement requesting Apple and Google to remove TikTok from its app stores by July 8th. He shared a four-page letter explaining that TikTok is not a video sharing app, but rather a, quote, sophisticated surveillance tool for the Chinese government that posed serious national security threats, end quote. He said, quote, TikTok is not what it appears to be on the surface. It is not just an app for sharing funny videos or memes. That's the sheep's clothing. At its core, TikTok functions as a sophisticated surveillance tool that harvests extensive amounts of personal and sensitive data. Indeed, TikTok collects everything from search and browsing histories to keystroke patterns and biometric identifiers, including face prints, which researchers have said might be used in unrelated facial recognition technology and voice prints. It collects location data, as well as draft messages and metadata, Plus, it has collected the text, images, and videos that are stored on a device's clipboard. The list of personal and sensitive data it collects goes on from there, end quote. If you have TikTok installed on your phone, you should delete it immediately. Listeners of this podcast know that I haven't hidden my disdain for TikTok, so it's validating to see all of this evidence come to light. And finally, to round out this news update, we have the CEO of Paramount taking a stand against historical revisionism saying that he does not want to remove historic programs from his subscription streaming service just because they no longer meet current expectations. Bob Backish said his company had thousands of shows in its back catalog. Quote, By definition, you have some things that were made in a different time and reflect different sensibilities. I don't believe in censoring art that was made historically. That's probably a mistake. It's all on demand. 
You don't have to watch anything you don't want to. End quote. And that does it for your metamodernism news update. As I mentioned up top, today's guest is Kevin Crossman. Kevin has worn many hats over the years. Library scientist, early web pioneer, podcast host, and being the Indiana Jones of my ties. Kevin and I overlap in many areas, and as you'll hear, his work played an important role in shaping my love of comedy, first through his Frat Pack tribute website, and later as the co-host of the That's What She Said podcast, which was very influential to me and my circle of friends. Years later, I discovered Kevin lives in the San Francisco Bay Area, not too far away from me, and we share an affinity for tiki bars, lounge music, and Mai Tais. So I was excited to talk to him about all of that, plus we touch on the current state of media amidst the streaming wars. Enjoy my conversation with the great Kevin Crossman. to know about where you came from what you've been up to that sort of stuff so talk to me a little bit about your early life sounds like you grew up in the bay area is that right i grew up in palo alto and basically lived my entire life in the bay area except for the four years when i was in santa barbara for college so i've had it real tough in terms of the weather (laughs) in my life but you know it's hard to leave the bay area because there's so much to do and so much to see and great culture and everything else it's not great if uh, money is a problem, but you know it's you kind of make it work. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the things I've noticed most about the Bay Area is it's just there's so much to do, so much to see. If you want to drive like an hour outside, of say two hours, just the radius around the the Bay Area, you can have so much to see and do. The only downside is it's tough to afford rent or to you know mortgage or what have you. But uh, sounds like you've been uh, able to at least take advantage of a lot of the, the what the Bay has to offer. Can you tell me a little bit about what it was like growing up in the Bay? Were there activities that you guys did as a family? Anything that sticks out? Well, it's funny when I was growing up in the '70s, it was the beginning of Silicon Valley, so that was all sort of starting to boom. And growing up in Palo Alto, there was always this very big divide on the bay mm-hmm. like we actually as a family made a special trip to drive over to fremont to ride bart when it was new <laughs> yeah which seems crazy like totally. a special trip to ride I bart. Mean, but bart was the state of the art back in the day it was like yeah. the, the future back in the early 70s and, and even today my parents who still live there i think that they think that crossing the bay is this big giant long thing and vice versa my wife's parents are in fremont to have them yeah. come over to the other side is like a big elaborate thing whereas yeah. to me it's just 20 minutes one way or the other yeah and it's, it's been great to to see uh, you know especially the tech industry mm-hmm. uh, grow up and you know i was introduced to computers pretty early and i was the first uh, i was the only person on my f- dorm floor who had a computer oh nice and you know would charge people x you know dollars per page to print yeah. stuff out on my computer because you know, I had a Mac, and so you could do the things where, you, oh, it needs to be three pages. Well, let's bump up that font size just a little yeah. bit. Oh, there you go. <laughs> totally. I mean, that was revolutionary. A lot of computers right. didn't do that back then. So to be able to do that at that time was incredible. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. So in Palo Alto, I can imagine, like, you had kind of a front row seat to all of the hot action that was happening. Were you aware at the time? I mean, obviously, you were pretty young, so I'm sure you weren't exactly tuned into it. But, I mean, over time, I'm sure you probably were hearing things in the news and whatnot. Well, yeah. And when I was in high school, there was a home computer club. Nice. Home computer club. Yeah. Like, that's not a term you hear anymore. But back then, it was, like, a big deal. Yeah. And we would, you know, get together and show off software and mm-hmm. you know maybe there might have been some 
acquiring of software and yeah. you know, means that way when you're a teenager and all that. Yeah, but, of course, of course. Uh, so you couldn't help but see that when, especially in Palo where the kids I was going to school with were sons and daughters of professors or tech icons mm-hmm. and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's really interesting because I feel like you would be able to not only have access to all of that sort of stuff, like the, the fact that you were there means you were able to kind of get an early preview almost before the rest of the world. In addition, you had the privilege of growing up with people who were connected to that world as well. So it kind of gave you a, a unique vantage point into the world of tech at an early age. So do you feel like that was able to potentially like kind of chart the course for the rest of your life? Yeah, it, when I went into college, I was really interested in physical anthropology and human mm-hmm. evolution, all that sort of thing. And it's still a topic that is very interesting to me, mm-hmm. but I realized pretty quickly that there wasn't really much of a career, and I, the thought of having to live for three months in the desert in Africa on my knees, <laughs> scraping you know bone out of the dirt, didn't exactly seem like a real awesome career path for me. And I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do, and then I got interested in library science. Mm, nice. So I decided, okay, I'll get the I'll get the degree, and I need to get a master's degree to do the career for library science anyway. So mm-hmm. it doesn't really matter what my undergraduate was. And so then I went to San Jose State at night to get my master's degree while working in a corporate library at oh, wow. uh, SRI. So again, I'm there at SRI where the mouse was born and all mm-hmm. these things, and it was, it was funny. I, I got my master's degree in December of 1993, and within a quarter was when the web came and basically uh-huh. laid waste to the entire sort of infrastructure of yeah. that industry within a, a matter of years. That's wild. But because I was interested in technology, computers, et cetera, when the web came, mm-hmm. it was immediately obvious that yeah. this was a great thing and we'd been playing with gopher i don't know if you know about no, that I'm familiar with it. gopher was sort of a sort of a proto web where you'd connect to a server and then it would give you a like a cascading list of menus oh interesting and then you sort of drill down and then there'd be a, like a text file or something like yeah. that so you could see how if people thought this was kind of cool to get access to information mm-hmm. that something with a graphical user interface yeah. was a lot really nicer. advanced yeah and um the whole hyperlinking thing was was really revolutionary and so mm-hmm. um i got into it pretty early there at work and also at, at you know sort of on personal stuff mm-hmm. and eventually transitioned into it to mm-hmm. build their corporate intranet and then i was on a path in my professional life to you know do mostly internal collaboration and internet management for different companies and that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, it seems like such an interesting time to get involved with library sciences because you were kind of in this transition between analog and digital. So first of all, how well-versed are you with the Dewey Decimal System? Was that something you got very well-versed in? Well, it's interesting. Um, In corporate libraries, they never use the Dewey Decimal System. That's like a public library thing. Got it, got it. uh, They use the Library of Congress classification scheme, which in theory is better. In library science, there's sort of a a catalog side and Mm -hmm. a reference side, Mm. more about gaining access to information. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was the side I was on. So basically what I was doing was people would come to me and say, I'm trying to do research on topic X, and I need you to find me some articles about topic X, or Mm -hmm. what's the latest on topic X, or whatever. And then we would connect into these expensive databases, it, and it was it was so expensive that the way it would work is I'd get a list of titles or abstracts, print it out, give it to the guy, 
He'd circle the ones he wanted, and I'd go back, and I'd go, you know, redo the search, and I'd say, give me yeah. items number five, three, ten, and, you know, whatever. And then it would get the full text of the article, and that yeah. was revolutionary. Yeah. Or we just look at the abstract, and if we had the journal or the uh, publication, then, of course, we'd just pull it off the shelf, yeah. and then he'd, he or she would have access to that material. So that's not so different from what I do today where I'm trying to train people how to use online meeting software or document mm -hmm. management software or things like that where someone comes to me and I want to help them. So that mm -hmm. service orientation was is kind of stayed with me uh, professionally. Yeah, that's really cool. To be studying library sciences at the time that you were, it really kind of set the tone for where technology was going at the time. I feel like you were kind of on the cusp of all of that. And to be able to parlay that into a career path for you and to be able to still utilize those skills is pretty awesome. Well, and more importantly, the fact that I was smart enough to transition out of library science as their sort of the publishing industry has started to collapse upon itself yeah. and, or just different cost structures, you know, and everything else. Absolutely. So I don't, I don't know what you would do today. It's, you know, I assume Google searches yeah. uh, and, and, and in combination with publication searches. I mean, that just seems... Yeah. Who knows? Do they even need that kind of role mm -hmm. as somebody who can maybe think outside the box in terms of searching and that because they think that they can, oh, I'll just do this and I can get some good results or yeah. know, whatever. And maybe you do, but mm -hmm. maybe you're overlooking some other things. I don't know. I don't yeah. know how that works. I'm glad I'm not in that. <laughs> yeah, and, totally. and IT stuff pays better anyway. So yeah. all, the, all the more. Sounds like you made the right call. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, definitely. So talk to me about like Bay Area in the 90s, because obviously there was such a, you know, a, a lot of tech flowing through the, these hills. And I think that to be plugged into to it like you were, I think it must have been just such an exciting time. Lots of things changing, lots of things happening. Yeah. From the beginning of the decade to the end of the decade, that was when most people got or most everybody had a computer by the end. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, that And you were still mostly in dial up mode yeah. at the end of the decade, but it would transition pretty quickly. And my memories, besides personal stuff like meeting my wife and all, all getting married and all that sort of thing, was the web was just a different way of connecting with people. Mm -hmm. And so I just made websites, and you know some of those were on, they were on very narrow topics, and we can maybe talk about some of those. Yeah, but the absolutely. idea was that you know you put something out there, and someone would connect. Mm -hmm. with you and you could build a little community and I was getting in involved with like listservs and mailing mm -hmm. lists yeah mostly around the um, sort of resurgence for lounge music oh, exotic uh, yeah. music which sort of got me into Tiki a little bit later but I, I want to talk about that by the way because I'm a huge fan of lounge music and the, the resurgence and whatnot but yeah yeah so you know it was it was that was the beginning of sort of connecting with people uh, but you had to kind of work at it and you had to really learn about how, you know, where do you connect? And you t you'd find somebody, you'd meet somebody online. And then, you know, if you heard about this mailing list, which mm -hmm. is like, okay, how do I do that? And, yeah. you know, it was just, I mean, mailing lists just to me seem crazy where you send an email and say subscribe and then it sends you this thing and then you get the, it's yeah. so uh, different than it is today. But, yeah. it, but at the same point, it's, you're, you're connecting with people online. And, uh, you know, as I got into it, there were times where I'd meet people or I'd make plans to meet people mm -hmm. in different places or whatever yeah. if we started to, you know, have some rapport or what, whatnot. Yeah. It was at the time community groups online were just starting to become a thing. Like, obviously, it's so commonplace these days. But those online forums and those listservs, uh, you know, that was revolutionary to be able to have a community. And I think 
culturally speaking, it allowed for people who are interested in more niche things that maybe if you were in a town that had a thousand people and you were the one person in the town that liked that kind of obscure thing, you could then go online and talk to other people from other cities around the world who are also interested in that thing. So I think it's kind of interesting that you almost saw like the seeds of where we are at now with the online communities and fan bases and things like that. So for you personally, it sounds like you were able to start the search for Ultimate Mai Tai back in like the late 90s, is that right? That's right. So I, I did a couple of little things. The, for a while, the Lip Balm Anonymous mm -hmm. uh, was sort of my claim to fame, and I nice. built a little website, and it, it was originally hosted on AOL because they gave web space, and you could just put your HTML there, and anyone in the world could find it, which was pretty cool. So for a while, I, I was that was sort of my claim to fame. I was on The Daily Show. Oh, uh, no did way. Whole That's part, awesome. Yeah. They did a two-part expose on lip balm addiction. They sent Brian what? Unger out with a, with a producer and a cameraman, and we did some interviews, and they got my friends together and <laughs> as sort of a faux uh, you know, support group, and they did yeah. a interview with them, and we went to a, a drugstore and did you know looked at the lip balm section, and, and, <laughs> and then they did a second part where they interviewed a bunch of celebrities who, you know, said that they were, you know, bombed on the set. And all this what? Kind of stuff. That's crazy. So anyway. So first of all, I, I'm not entirely familiar with this. Can you explain to the layperson what this lip balm website is? Well, like many things, it is a habit-forming substance. Okay. And, and truly, because I, I had a friend from college who was visiting from the, for like the weekend, mm -hmm. and we'd finished a meal, and I was sitting there, and, and she said, well, are you going to put your lip balm on now? I'm like, what? And she said, after every meal, once you're done, you put the lip balm on. And because you're, you're wiping your face with the napkin yeah. or whatever. And I couldn't believe it. And that was what sort of struck, like, oh, hmm. maybe I am sort of addicted to this, and I use yeah. it all the time and all that. And so, it, again, niche website, mm -hmm. kind of funny. Yeah, We're not trying to equate this with heroin addiction and all this kind of stuff. But at the same point, weird websites, mm. and this was pretty weird, Yeah, were kind of a thing back then. Yeah, And so, you know, again, I did a couple little TV appearances and, mm -hmm. you know, write-ups and all that kind of stuff. And so with the success, quote-unquote, yeah. <laughs> air quotes, of uh, Lip Balm uh, Anonymous, I was looking for something else yeah. to do something on the web and like I mentioned you know the lounge music had come up mm -hmm. and can this is so ridiculous today <laughs> so by then there were actually stores where you could go to where they sold, sold CDs mm -hmm. and because it's a CD and not an LP or a tape it's not really a destructive mechanism if you play it yeah and so they would allow you to listen to CDs that they had in their store they would actually crack open the huh. CD and let you go to like a little CD player station and then you can listen to it, which wow, is great yeah. because you, and you get to believe it or not, thing. you might want to listen to something before you buy it. It's incredible because right? I, I had memories of a similar thing, except at Barnes and Noble, it was just you'd scan the barcode and you get to listen to a little like poorly encoded sample of it. Right, it wasn't right. the full song. So you got actually it, like the full deal, the full CD quality. Right. right. And they give, you, they give you the CD and you can look at the book and all that other stuff. And so it was great for me to, when this lounge stuff started coming out, then mm -hmm. the compilations started. Yeah, absolutely. And so then you'd listen to compilations and like, uh, there was a series uh, that um, Capital put out called the Ultra Lounge. Ultra, I've got every volume. I love and, it. And but you know they were on, they were all lounge music as a, a wide umbrella. But yeah. you know one, there was one for bongos, there was one for crime, there was one yep. for Exotica, and Exotica yep. was was the first one I listened to because it was number one in the series. Yeah. And I thought, wow, this music is really cool. I like the percussion and. 
as I started to get more into learning more about exotic music on these online mailing lists and everything else, mm -hmm. people talk about how you could hear this music in tiki bars. Mm -hmm. And I'd already been to Hawaii and seen <laughs> what happens when you, you go, we had like a day trip to Lanai. Okay, so nice. this was when I was a kid before I started drinking, but you know, you go, you go over on the boat, everyone's got free Mai Tais, or yeah. everyone's being really happy. Uh, of course. You know, they're making a big deal about it. Yeah. And then on the way back, everyone's moving real slow. <laughs> yeah, and they're totally. like, well, those Mai Tais are pretty good, yeah, I guess. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I had experienced that. And so I thought, oh, well, there's exotic music. We can go mm -hmm. to the Tiki Bar. And of course, the sort of default drink that you would have at the Tiki Bar is a Mai Tai. Yeah. And back then, the Mai Tais you got mostly were just a bunch of pineapple and grenadine and really crappy rum. Yeah. But, I, you know, I went to Trader Vic's because it's it was there in Emeryville back mm -hmm. then and right up from the East Bay from Fremont, where we were living. Yeah. And the Mai Tai, of course, was great there. That's where it was invented. Yeah, I was going to say, it's like original out here in the Bay Area, right? Right, yeah. right. And so I thought, well, that's really good. I wonder if there's any other places that have good Mai Tais. And yeah. so that became... The search for the ultimate Mai Tai website where I would talk about, hey, where can you get a good Mai Tai? And we had a little mm -hmm. intake form where people could send in reviews. Oh, nice. And then you could go to the site and sort by rating a region, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Although it was all very, very low tech in terms of how the submissions came and how I put together the pages. There wasn't technically a database there. And so it was yeah. just very rough. So, but the, you know, it got, got some little notoriety. And it, yeah. you can see why with services today like Yelp or in the Tiki world, Kritiki mm -hmm. was, is a popular website, has been a popular website. People want to share their experiences. Yeah. Especially when it's something unique or something new, or if it's a bad one, they want to let people know and warn them. Yeah. I, usually I, I like to assume good intent for the negative review in that I'm not just doing it to you know shit on the place, but yeah. to actually warn people or give them a heads up or whatever. Yeah, totally. So that launched in 98 and I had done a bunch of stuff with Trader Vic's where they gave me a press kit and I talked to their nice. uh, VP, it was Trader Vic's grandson and wow. we did a bunch of things like that. And it ran for around four years. Mm -hmm. I also had my, my first son was born in 98. Our oh, second cool. one was in 2002. So we were not going out as much yeah. as we would have been if we were, and being in Fremont, even then it was sort of like you had to make a big trip to yeah. come out to the city because if you if you're not familiar, how do I get from here to there? This is before, of course, all the driving direction software now, but even yeah. before you would get MapQuest, yeah. where you would print out those directions, oh my gosh, yeah. right? And so you, you really had to kind of know your city, and, yeah. and it wasn't always so easy. So when you're trying to drive around and, and find places around here, were you using like a traditional fold-out map, or would you do research online beforehand? Yeah, or? so I, I actually I, I saved my map where I actually had a map of San Francisco, and I would find the address or figure out where these tiki bars were, and I would drop a, a red pen on and circle this point. Oh, so wow. typically my wife would be the driver she had gone to school in, in the city, so she was a little mm -hmm. bit more familiar. And I'm a better navigator mm -hmm. than she is, so it sort of worked out that way. Yeah. So it's like, okay, we're on this street, now we're passing this street, okay, it's gonna be on the next thing, and they'll start looking around for parking or whatever. Yeah. That was kind of how it kind of had to work Nice. back then. That's funny. Um, I'm curious about this website too, because you were making websites in the world of like Web 1.0, back before there was really this 
two-way communication that we take for granted, I think, now. Yep. So what was it like interacting with people? It sounds like it was like a mail-in thing. They would physically mail you something, or was it email? Or? Yeah, so you always had the email address and people to email in. But the website had an intake form mm -hmm. where basically you would, you know, name a place, which geography is it, and then a star rating mm -hmm. for taste and for atmosphere, and then a little... Um, section for you to you know just type in whatever your review is yeah and so they would hit that and then i would get an email that said new review and then i'd go to the server and find the little file that's the file with all the people who yeah. submitted and like yank this out and if it was halfway decent or at least good or whatever then i mm -hmm. would then take their thing and put it into the pages that i was hand coding with html oh wow 1, yeah. 1.0 2.0 and then i'd publish the website and then you know so for a place like Trader Vic's where there was a multiple reviewers, then you'd have this guy's review on this date, mm -hmm. star rating, then this guy and all that. So nice. Yeah. It's, so it was all very, very much by hand. Yeah. And, Labor of love, it sounds like. And, you know, but because I was involved with those mailing lists, I was doing a little bit of promotion and, you know, some guys would, you know, reach out to me and say, you know, I have this essay that I'm writing, you want to post it on the site? Great. And there was a journalist out in Hawaii who had been doing a bunch of stuff, and he contacted me, and he let me republish some of his articles hmm. on the website as well. So, you know, it, it forked too long. There was, you know, enough there there yeah. for it to be a, a little bit of a website for, you know, hey, how do I make a Mai Tai? What is the recipe? Yeah, that's so cool. I think it's it's just so interesting to, to be able to kind of find that niche and to be able to create a community that didn't quite exist at the time. I think there were pockets of it for sure. You mentioned before about kind of the, the tiki revival that was happening in the 90s. But I think to be able to kind of jump ahead of that and say like, let's get something going to unite these people. Um, so I think that's such an interesting thing for you to do. I, I do want to go back a little bit because as we were walking in, you mentioned, you know, you had some concerts that unfortunately were getting canceled. So were you going to any live shows in the 90s? Did you have a, a music presence out here? Well, I mean, we would go to, to shows, but because we were in Fremont, I, you know, I went to a couple places that had live stuff, in this, especially in this Tiki. Mm -hmm. But I didn't go like all the time. There, yeah. You know, there wasn't, it, there, it wasn't a situation where I was coming up to a certain club every week or whatever yeah. uh, if there were spe some special events maybe i'd do that but mostly my concert going in that period was the sort of standard you know who do you like and yeah general well, concerts well what were you into at the time because i i love music all sorts of different varieties so i'm curious as to what you were into back back then well i'd gotten into well again i grew up in the 70s so middle school was when disco died and then i did get pretty good into the you know like new wave stuff yeah so you know, the policemen at work, all that kind of yeah, stuff. Right. Oingo Boingo was, was my favorite. Yeah. And then as, you know, the decade went on, the modern rock of any of this sort of subgenres mm -hmm. was kind of what I was into. So because I was in modern rock, then of course, when grunge or whatever you want to call it, I don't yeah. like the term alternative. Yeah. When that kind of came in, of course, it was the natural progression. Mm -hmm. And as much as it sort of killed the careers of some or, or greatly reduced the, the presence of some of my favorite artists you know i did like nirvana and all the other you know sort of typical yeah uh, grunge stuff nice nice there's so much music that has come out that i feel like some generations kind of ignore these days for in favor of what's ever on the radio all of that music was actually very influential for me growing up i grew up on an oldie station um, which obviously it's not quite oldies, but you know they, they used to play 70s and 80s stuff all the time. Yeah. And uh, and actually Danny Elfman uh, had such an impact on me growing up. I used to watch Pee Wee's Big Adventure a lot, and that score 
something about the the music in there really kind of sunk into me at an early age and i was able to kind of dig oingo boingo from there on out and kind of really get into their stuff well one of my websites one of my little niche websites was an oingo boingo tattoo <laughs> website where people could submit oingo boingo tattoos or you know if it's related you yeah know, nightmare before christmas of course yeah yeah so that was one of them and then yeah the that percussion style that Oingo Boingo had, and it also with Elfman's solo stuff, mm -hmm. was actually a big eye-opener when I got into the Exotica, because that old Exotica percussion was analog, yeah. and this was digital, but it was still the same idea of mallet instruments and, yeah. and and things like that. In college, I really started to do like a deep dive into like the lounge and Exotica movement, and looking at it, it really is the history of America, if you look back, just because a lot of this originally came out of the post-World War II era. You know, people that were kind of longing for their time in the Pacific really kind of brought that to the forefront. Have you seen this? Uh, it's a BBC documentary produced in the mid-90s called Air Conditioned Eden. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That sort of thing. I think it's just such a does such a great job of, in a nutshell, kind of talking about, you know, guys like Martin Denny, Les Baxter, Arthur Lyman, you know, kind of the, the figureheads of the movement. And over time, obviously, that music kind of fell out of fashion. But in the 90s, it really started to see a, a kind of a comeback. So... Do you know exactly what ignited that? Because I can't seem to figure out any particular rhyme or reason for what kind of sparked that interest in people. Well, you know, everyone always points to Swingers, which was a pretty big hit and focused on swing music, which is mm -hmm. um, obviously sort of a related genre. Yeah. And I think that, you know, everyone always looks backwards 20 years. Yeah. So the 80s, there was a lot of sort of like looking back at the 60s. And so I think we were coming to age and we were learning about these things. Mm -hmm. And you look at the 60s you, and maybe you go back a little bit further then you're in the 50s and mm -hmm. all the different kinds of styles that were yeah. available. So it just sort of came very quickly. So yeah. I don't know if I can tell you what sparked yeah. it per se. You know, I know in L.A. they talked that a lot of the people that were down there came came from the punk scene mm -hmm. and for some reason these punks had an affinity for exotica and some of the more obscure instrumental type music i mean surf obviously yeah kind of related so i guess it's that yeah. and then i think from a marketing standpoint that was the mid 90s so you've had this alternative thing going for about five years and of course the way the music industry works they're always looking for some new thing to promote yeah. and you know by then cds were very mainstream mm -hmm. it, it was not mainstream even in even in the mid 80s people i mean you had to really turn into the 90s before cds were really mainstream and so of course then you could do the, all the reissues and all that sort of thing and so mm -hmm. the record companies i'm sure I'm mean, sure isn't cheap to do a reissue, but it's a lot yeah. less expensive than signing some new artists. <laughs> yeah, totally. And just putting it out there, and people rebuy it. And it, I, I find the current vinyl resurgence to be curious. Yeah. Because I had never liked the medium because I don't like the pops and all that stuff. Hey, a big record cover mm -hmm. and a back cover. I love looking at that, but yeah. I like looking at a CD book more, and I yeah. like the sound quality better. Yeah. So, so uh, just don't look over here. Yeah, I know. Point, got, points got, to my got, record you, collection. You, 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 yeah, it's all good. But I, you know, I, I like, I understand the aesthetic of it. Yeah. But, but I just don't like the audio yeah. quality. Oh, totally. And I'll take two fifty six kilobit AAC over yeah. vinyl any day from a sound quality perspective. Yeah. And I know we can have the arguments about specific things with certain equipment or whatever. But I just don't want to hear all the pops and all yeah. that stuff when I listen to my music. Absolutely. And so, but anyway, I think that that sort of like oh, now it's available on CD, pristine mm -hmm. quality, remastered, all this kind of stuff. It really did excite a lot of us to reinvestigate these new genres of music. Yeah, absolutely. And I think to be able to hear that in such high quality, 
like just the the ability to hear something in better quality than what people could have heard at the time is just incredibly interesting to me in the same way that when we look at remasters of old TV shows or films, it's just, they do such a great job of really picking out all of the quality to it. And especially with some of these uh, early recordings, Arthur Lyman was a great example of when they went back to go remaster some of its original tapes, they do very little work because he had such high quality recordings to begin with. But, you know, when you press it on vinyl, you still have potentially warps and pops and all that, you know, sort of things that you get with a vinyl record. So to be able to hear something in pristine quality on CD, uh, must have been really exciting. Yeah, well, and that those records were always marketed as hi-fi or high-fidelity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, so back in the 50s, if you were someone who was all into this audio stuff, mm -hmm. this would be the kind of music you might be listening to because yeah. it, especially on the Martin Tenney albums, they had some very good stereo uh, mixing. Yeah. And it's not just like one thing in one channel and the singer in another channel, like yeah. those early Beatles records or whatever. Yeah. I mean, it was it was good spatial mixing. And yeah. so it, it translated very well to this uh, newer medium. It's so funny you mentioned that because Martin Denny's recordings specifically, when I play them on these stereo paired home pods, it's incredible. Um, the way that these spatial audio works, it just sounds like the, the sound is literally encircling you. Um, just the way the stereo panning works, it's it's pretty fantastic that even, you know, what, 60, 70 years later, these recordings still hold up as well as they do. It's funny because um, you're talking about the kind of lounge revival in the 90s. Being a kid of the 90s, I actually got exposed to uh, lounge music through library music of sorts. Uh, you know, it's kind of the sister genre there. And a bunch of kids television in the 90s had library music. So Ren and Stimpy, The Adventures of Pete and Pete, SpongeBob, they would all use these library tracks from APM. And, you know, growing up, I didn't really think too much of it, but the seed was planted from such an early age that this is music that's a bit different, that, you know, doesn't quite sound like what's on the radio. And to me, it kind of sparked an interest in that. So when I started getting into more kind of lounge and exotic music in college, I really just went off the deep end and went searching for all this sort of stuff. And the sad truth is there's actually a lot of this music that's harder to find. There is quite a lot of it out there in terms of, you know, digital streaming services and whatnot, but there's actually quite a few of these albums that haven't all made the leap to digital yet. There's still quite a handful of them that are just on vinyl and haven't quite come over to digital yet. Um, so in the mid 2000s, there were a bunch of blogs and I'm sure you may have visited them uh, where there would just be, you know, crate diggers. They would go out to these record stores and they'd find all these rare Exotica records and they'd just rip them and they'd get, you know, a high quality MP3 rip and they'd put it out there. Yep. But, you know, if it wasn't for them, none of this music would be accessible today. So I think it's kind of a shame that there is such a rich history of lounge and exotic movement and only a small percentage of it is available to a lot of people when they're trying to go find it. No, that's true. And that's the good thing about the internet today to be able to connect people um, to find that music. And I always feel like, to me, if I like it and it's out there, I should buy it. Yeah. But if it's not out there and someone rips the LP from 60 years ago, I'm not going to feel any guilt about acquiring it and listening mm -hmm. to it because I'd be happy to pay yeah. whoever. But if it's not there, how am I supposed to do that? Yeah, I feel the exact same way. I, I don't feel conflicted about it simply because, you know, the artist who recorded it has probably passed away by now. The record label, it's defunct. That's why a lot of this music is just on records because the record label went belly up. Those master recordings are gone right now. No, nobody's really going out there and, and preserving that, unfortunately. Some, some of them are literally gone in that yeah. universal fire. But um. Oh my gosh, yeah, we could talk about that too. I mean, that, I mean, talk about the universal fire in the sense of it happened in 2008. And, and for those of you that don't know, we're talking about the universal backlot fire that happened in Los Angeles in 2008. 
And I remember when it did happen, there was just a small news article about it back in 2008. I remember reading it and just thinking, oh, you know, I think it, it was right, the King Kong ride, I believe, was the, the ride that sparked the, the fire. And it just so happened to spread to their back lot, which contained all of their, you know, a lot of their master recordings for different recording artists. And, you know, that's all we heard of it at the time. Well, 10 years later, we got this huge expose from the New York Times, and they went in and basically were able to talk about all the things that were lost when Universal had basically been burying that for the last decade. So it's surprising to me that a full decade later, we finally got to know the truth about what actually transpired in that fire. And uh, it was codenamed Project Phoenix, if you remember, and they talked about all the different master recordings that allegedly were lost. And, uh, you know, Universal, of course, is saying that, oh, we, we were able to back up a lot of this stuff, you know, none of these master tapes really mattered, but it, it hurts, you know, as somebody who cares for the preservation of media and specifically for, uh, you know, some of these, these things that aren't available anymore, it hurts to, to lose that sort of stuff. Do you know about Lost Media Wiki? Have you heard of them? I've not heard of Lost so, Media So, yeah, Lost Media Wiki just came up a couple of years ago and it is a wiki site for all things Lost Media. So we're talking television shows, movies, video games, uh, TV clips, things like that. And it basically talks about the things that we've lost based on the fact that either nobody was recording it at the time or you know it's locked away in a studio vault somewhere. And what's really cool is they do updates. So we get to sometimes find the lost things and they kind of track it all and whatnot. So it's a great rabbit hole to go down if you're interested in some of the things that have been lost to time, such as silent films. You know, It's estimated that roughly, what, 90% of silent films are just lost forever based on the fact they were nitrate back in the day, you know, and they just burn them after they were done. So it's absurd how much media we've potentially lost, uh, which is a real shame. Well, all the TV from the 50s that was never recorded. Yeah. A lot of sporting events were not recorded. Um, it's so different now. Yeah. Uh, with, you know, pervasive media. Absolutely. Do you know about Marion Strokes? Have you ever heard of her? Nope. So there was a documentary put out just a couple of years ago, and this lady, her name was Marion Strokes, and she was a philanthropist who also had a lot of interest in preserving media. So she actually had, I can't remember, like 100 VCRs or something ridiculous like that. And she would record news media constantly. And it's actually her archive of VHS tapes from the late 70s all the way up until, I think she stopped recording in like 2010, 2012, right up until the moment she passed. She is one of the largest archivers of television in history, and all of her VHS tapes are now going to the Internet Archive. So they're attempting to kind of back those up and whatnot. I'm sure a lot of it is just, you know, news broadcasts and whatnot. These are things that, you know, maybe even CNN or whoever was airing these news stories at the time, they're not even archiving this sort of stuff. So it's kind of fascinating when years later we find out, oh, somebody was recording this entire time. And when I want to go back and I want to look at something like, you know, the Challenger disaster, like some historical moment that was big, you know, and talk about like Loma Prieta. I mean, you were probably out there for that, right? Yep. Yeah. yeah. So how was, I mean, I'm curious as to what your experience was uh, during that earthquake. Well, I was a little bit of a baseball fan, so I was trying to get out of work a little bit early to watch the game. Mm -hmm. And so I was on El Camino in Menlo Park, driving home, and I was driving my parents' old Volkswagen bus. <laughs> I was just sort of transitioning out of the house mm -hmm. in that time frame. And so I was there, I stopped at a stoplight, and all of a sudden my car is shaking, and <sighs> light, light poles were really going, and I thought, oh, wow, that was pretty big. Yeah. And then I get, by the time I drove over to my parents' house to watch the game, 
it's like, oh, <laughs> this is very serious. <laughs> yeah. So that's wild. It w- it wasn't too bad for me, but my, yeah. my my wife was in a, you know, a building at San Francisco State that oh. eventually the building had to be destroyed because oh, it was wow. like damaged, you know, all that stuff. So that's wild. And it's it's crazy how much things have changed. I was watching um, the Deadpool. Yeah. The Clint Eastwood film, the Deadpool, a couple nights ago, and this is filmed before uh, they tore down the Embarcadero Freeway, and yeah. it's just crazy to oh, me yeah. because they spent so much time here in the city in the last decade or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we enjoy walking down there. I thought, oh my God, if this freeway was there, yeah. it would be crazy. Oh my gosh, yeah. It's ridiculous to see that because there's a couple of, I think it's in Full House as well, there's a couple of films and, and TV shows that were shot in like the mid-80s or whatever, and they would show this freeway, and I felt the exact same thing. I said, how is this even possible? It just seems like it totally obstructs the view of the ferry building, and uh, I'm, I'm glad it's gone, but it's just so interesting that that was there. But it's it's fascinating to me that there's this historical artifact of these films, these television shows, right. that allow you to kind of get a window into this city that has obviously changed a significant amount. You talked to Clint Eastwood, we were going through Dirty Harry movies, and I think it's the first one where he's up on the building and you got the pool that's up there, this rooftop pool. And we're like, this looks gorgeous. I would love to go to this rooftop pool. You do a little digging on Wikipedia, you find that they uh, have destroyed the pool, the pool's no longer there and whatnot. But, you know, it's interesting to see some of the things that are no longer there. I forget there's a 1950s film that actually showed the Sutra Baths back before they burned down. Oh, wow. Uh, back when it was still an ice skating rink. And it's like one film that survived from the era that shows the Sutra Baths. Hello from the future. The mystery film is from 1958 called The Lineup, directed by Don Siegel, who would later go on to direct Dirty Harry, whose opening sequence shows a rooftop pool at the Holiday Inn Select downtown at 750 Kearney Street, which is now the Hilton San Francisco Financial District, at which you can currently stay, albeit without the rooftop pool. So it's, it's interesting kind of the rich history that the Bay Area has for being on film. I didn't realize until I moved out here how many of my favorite movies growing up were actually shot out here in the Bay Area. Uh, so it's just really fascinating that there's such a rich history of film here in San Francisco. Uh, in fact, I was just watching Days of Wine and Roses. It's an old 60s film with uh, Jack Lemon. And there's a moment where he's walking down Maiden Lane. He walks past the Frank Lloyd Wright building. It's a very famous building here in San Francisco. And I was like, I know those bricks. I know that pattern. And there he was walking down Maiden Lane. So it's wild that you can see something, you know, 50, 60 years later, and, you know, you can still spot these iconic locations. Right. And, you know, that's part of the interest in the tiki for me, tiki bars, is that obviously part of the reason you want to go to a tiki bar is because you want to have a drink yeah. and escape, you know, your daily routine or whatever. But also just the history of it from the mid-century when this genre of destination restaurant bar was very popular. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously people that are into tiki bars are largely drawn to this past where you know, the old Tiki Bob that's around the corner from here and in the Trader Vicks that was around the corner is, you know, it's people know about that stuff and they mm-hmm. go and they make pilgrimages yeah, and all that sort of thing. So yeah, it's, it's the old media is really helpful for that kind of stuff too. Yeah. You know, if you, if it's something that's, you know, has a, you know, past history. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm curious too, uh, what exactly about the Bay Area is is just rife with tiki bars. Is it just because Trader Vic's is kind of founded out here, or was there something else about the Bay Area that kind of lent itself to tiki culture? Yeah, you know, for people that are new to this stuff, the, the sort of original tiki bar that most people sort of point to is Don the Beachcomber, which opened mm-hmm. right after Prohibition ended in Los Angeles, in Hollywood. 
and it became a big um, deal for celebrities to go. And in those days, the tiki bars, you know, the really good ones anyway, were like black tie, all that sort of thing. And Don would even treat the celebrities with super really great service. They'd have like a little um, Don the Beach Gummer, they would have a cabinet where the chopsticks for Clark Gable or whoever the celebrities would be kept there. And, and when Clark would come, he'd come out and get his special chopsticks or whatever. Nice. And of course, for the people that weren't celebrities, ooh, look, it's yeah. Clark Gable's chopsticks, you know. And so that started in uh, the early 30s, and Trader Vic Bergeron, who opened uh, Trader Vic's, was really influenced by this burgeoning genre of tropical bar, mm-hmm. um, escapist bar, and he went down there, saw what Don was doing, and, and sort of got religion on the theme of mm. the restaurant. And you know, he was a restaurateur and was really good with flavors and that sort of thing. And so. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea of having what at the time were exotic types of foods, Cantonese mm-hmm. food, yeah, uh, things like that, combining with, you know, something that was beyond a normal shot of whiskey in a, in a beer yeah. um, for cocktails uh, became a big hit. And so why are Tiki Bars, were they big and why are they still big is because of Trader Vic. Mm-hmm. That place in Oakland in the original location was very notable. Herb Kane had written an article, and he said the best restaurant in San Francisco is in Oakland, oh, and nice. it was Trader Vic's. Nice. So when Herb Kane blesses you, yeah. you know, you can take that to it's the bank deal, for decades, yeah. right? And so he did his thing, and then the copycats started. There was mm-hmm. Zombie Village was across the street from Trader Vic's, mm-hmm. and then all these kind of places just popped up. Yeah. Trader Sam here in, in San Francisco yeah. is the longest continually operating tiki bar in the oh, world. Yeah. It's really not much of a tiki bar these days, it's more of a diet bar. <laughs> yeah. But once you build up this culture, then mm-hmm. it sort of comes and comes back in waves. Yeah. And I think why our tiki bar is popular in San Francisco today is largely based on that influence from the past, but also because craft cocktails are big in San Francisco. Yeah. And most tiki bars, good tiki bars anyway, they serve really good cocktails that are similar to these craft cocktails that you would get at Bourbon and Branch or any of these yeah. other kind of places. Totally. Yeah, there's, I mean, just in the time that I've lived here, you know, I moved here in 2016, there's several that have popped up, you know. I think Pagan Idol had just opened up or was just opening up. Yep. And then you had Zombie Village and I think Smuggler's Cove, like all of these kind of, it's like an almost like a new wave of these tiki bars. Um, then, of course, you have, you know, Tonga Room and some of the tried and true classics. But do you have any go-to locations when you're here in the city that you really love? Yeah, well, um on our search for the ultimate Thai, ultimate Mai Tai website, ultimatemaitai.com, we have uh, a few pages that we have for uh, certain destinations. Okay. So, uh, because I kept answering the same questions over and over on these online forums. Yeah. And like, if I'm going to Palm Springs, which where should I go? Mm-hmm. Like, answer it all the time. Like, okay, I'm, I'm I'm redoing the site now. We can talk about how that kind of restarted. But yeah. now I've got a page for Palm Springs because I mean, there's only four tiki bars in Palm yeah. Springs, but. It, you know, what are you looking for? Mm-hmm. Am I looking for really good cocktails? Is that my important, most important thing? Mm-hmm. Or am I looking for service and food? Or am I looking for grandeur, like mm-hmm. the Tonga Room is here? Yeah. What you're looking for will vary a little bit. And so mm-hmm. on our rating on our rating system, we kind of weight those things differently. So okay. it depends on what you're really looking for. You yeah. decide, okay, yes, Smuggler's Cove is rated number one in the city mm-hmm. because their cocktails are the best. But it's kind of small, kind of maybe hard to get into. There's no food, though. Yeah. So if I'm like, all right, well, food is more of a priority, well, then I might go someplace else. Yeah. So anyway, so there's lots of pros and cons to all these different places. Yeah. But 
yes, Smothers Cove is kind of my favorite. Their cocktails are really, really good. And yeah. I'm, I'm into rum as a um, distilled spirit. Mm-hmm. And of course, they have the largest rum collection of any bar, wow. probably North America. <laughs> you know, a thousand bottles of rum on site at any given time. That's incredible. And, you know, they have a rum club where if you keep tasting all the rums, then you get, you know, special awards and all that kind of stuff. But then Zombie Village around the corner, you mm-hmm. know, now that it's back open and, and operating, a little bit more grand mm-hmm. and still a great and very strong cocktail program and yeah. maybe a little bit centrally located so it's easy enough to get to. Mm-hmm. Um, it's partable, whereas Smothers Cove, you really got to, you know, hike it from Bart, yeah. that sort of thing. So, you know, there's lots of great options just here in the city. There's probably... 10 reasonable tiki bars just yeah. in San Francisco and then in the wider Bay Area another 10 or 12. That's so cool. There, there is kind of an art to it just based on you know all the different things that you may want out of a tiki bar as you mentioned. So I think it's, it's obviously tough to say this is the best tiki bar this is the best place. You kind of want to weight it a little bit differently depending on what they're, they're into. Um, have you gotten a chance to meet Doc Parks? Do you know about him? Yep. Yeah, because he seemed to be kind of spearheading this this movie. I only met him uh, right as he was leaving Zombie Village, uh, but he went out. I think it's called uh, the the new one in Napa. It starts with a W. Uh, Wilfred's. Wilfred's. Yes, Wilfred's. So it's interesting. Kind of, he's almost like the Johnny Appleseed of tiki bars. Just kind of plants a seed, kind of you know gets the bar up and going, and then it just kind of moves off and does the next thing. Well, I mean that's the way it works in this industry. You know, if mm-hmm. you've got somebody who's got the creative vision and can execute. Mm -hmm. on this stuff you know that's really important to have a good general manager owner or whatever their role might be in terms of the cocktails and sometimes what happens is that when that person leaves for whatever reason Mm -hmm. maybe the place goes downhill afterwards yeah and that again that's not unique to tiki bars it's Mm -hmm. the way it works with restaurants and and and, you know a bunch of other types of uh, venues yeah that's so interesting. Switching gears a little bit, I do want to talk about your foray into podcasting because you were able to kind of get in um, right when podcasts were just on the cusp of starting. Is what two thousand four? So I think podcasts were yep, introduced. Yep. Um, so you had started podcasting what in the mid two thousands? Yeah, I got an iPod Shuffle, <laughs> which was my first iPod, and I was you know interested in, in listening to music in the car. Whatever and again, this was before all the really cool integrations that you've got there today. Mm-hmm. And right when I got it was when I first heard about podcasting, and I mm-hmm. thought it was the greatest thing in the world because I was interested in all these little narrow niche genres. Yeah. And so sometimes there'd be a guy who would make a podcast about Disneyland or mm-hmm. whatever I was in, into. And during this time period, I had been the the tiki stuff was wasn't like I forgot about it, but I it's, it wasn't as much of a focus. And I was really getting into uh, movies and television. So I had actually started a website around the Frat Pack. Yes. Because Zoolander especially was sort of very influential at, you know, this was a guy who was my age, coming of age in, in cinema. And, you know, Reality Bites have been very influential from yeah. him. And he started doing a bunch of really good comedies. Yeah. And then it was like, oh, hey, it's a Ben Stiller movie and Owen Wilson's here again. <laughs> and yeah. Will Ferrell, I like him, and he's in this movie too. And uh, like, and then next time Ben Stiller's got a cameo in Will Ferrell's movie or yeah. whatever. And so all these connections was really cool. And so I did like a little tribute website to those guys and with you know news of what's happening. And again, yeah. th- those were those movies were really popular. It's crazy to think today about how comedies really are not even released. Yeah. 
widely. The state of comedy right now, there's, there's no big studio comedies in the same way that there were in the early 2000s. Right. It's and a totally different it's game. It's all moved to streaming, and yeah. so the stuff was pretty popular, so I thought, yeah. okay, I'll, you know, I can I can get the DVD, I can go to my local movie theater, I don't have to drive up to the city, mm-hmm. or the Oakland, or Emmerville, or whatever, to do my thing, and I could go to a movie, and my wife could stay home with the kids, or whatever. You know, yeah. like, it wouldn't be a big deal. So I, that was what I was into at that time, and so I got, I heard the podcast, and I thought, hey, you know, this is pretty interesting. Well, I've got this frat pack website maybe i could do a frat pack podcast and talk about what's happening and do reviews and and play music from the movies and all that kind of stuff (laughs) and so just like it was when the web was new and like get in there start learning how to do it that was exactly how it was for me with podcasting and you know the Rat Pack podcast didn't exactly, you know, set the world on fire. And for a variety of reasons, that site and those podcasts are basically offline now. But, you know, I, again, started making connections and I was listening to shows. And mm-hmm. the That's What She Said podcast, which is about The Office. Yes. So Steve Carell, who's in that sort of same group of guys who were in all these movies... So I was very interested in The Office, especially after season one. Yeah. Um, and so the guy had a podcast, and I was listening. I was a listener, and then his co-host quit, basically. Mm. And he said on the show, like, "Hey, Ian's quitting. Anybody want to try out for, to be the new co-host?" Yeah. And so I reached out immediately because I know what I was doing. I hosted mm-hmm. my own podcast, and I'm like, I can be a co-host and yeah. talk about The Office. I'd love to talk to somebody about The Office. That's awesome. And so I was the first guest host, and he had three or four other people who did it but you know basically I sort of won the job (laughs) through hard work or whatever and so for the next four or five years I was you know the co-host for that show and it you know was Matt Summer was the guy who had started it Mm -hmm. it was was his show I was the co-host it wasn't like you're the host and I'm a host it was host and co-host it was mm-hmm. like that sort of dynamic yeah although in the in the later season or so i ended up doing a little bit more of the audio production than okay than previous i wasn't just there as talent to react to anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, was, I was actually sort of producing and ripping the clips and all that other stuff but really it was his thing and so when mm-hmm. he decided he didn't want to do it anymore then that's his call it's his yeah. show yeah. but you know that got a lot of you know notoriety and i still get pinged at least three or four times a year yeah. because we 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 ended uh, one season before the office ended. Yeah, it's and season pe- eight. People yeah. are like, "Hey, when are you gonna do the last season?" You know, it's like <laughs> yeah. talk to Matt. It's you know, it's his yeah. call. But people still reach out, and it's still people still listening. It's so it's great, yeah. you know. And you know, obviously now the show has you know been resurgent on uh, streaming services, and mm-hmm. it's almost more popular than it's ever been. Yeah. And so people are still seeking it. And if you know, if you want to listen to a you know a real time reaction to these episodes you're listening for, you know, you could go check out. Yeah. That's what she said podcast. And, it's still up there. And, yeah. and it's, it's interesting, too, because, you know, one of the most notable episodes of The Office was the dinner party. Oh, yeah. Um, but, I, you know, so I, I went back and I list, re-listened to that episode. And I forgot that it was the first episode back after the writer's strike yeah. back then. And, it's huge. You know, it's like, it was a big deal back then, but you yeah. don't really think about these sorts of things. And it was really interesting because... We had two very different reactions to that episode. One of us thought it was like a really weird, and I didn't think it was a very funny episode. Mm-hmm. And the other person thought it was an all-time classic. Huh. So uh, I'm gonna yeah on the back trick, because yeah. I, I was on the all-time classic. Yeah, side yeah, totally. Is. Yeah, so, so you were able to see it for what it was at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. That's incredible. There's so much that I want to unpack with that because, um, first of all, I really got interested in comedy through the frat pack. I mean, I growing up, I was into 
Three Stooges, Laurel and Hardy, kind of, you know, some of that era. But really, I felt like the frat pack was like the first comedy that I felt like spoke to me. Something about the comedic stylings, you know. And to be honest, these were the first movies that I actually had on my video iPod. Talking about iPods, um, <laughs> I would actually get the DVDs and I would rip them onto the computer and put them on my iPod. So films like Zoolander and Orange County and Anchorman and all of these, you know, early 2000s comedies, I would endlessly watch them on my two and a half inch like little video screen there. But there was something about it that was really interesting and what's so funny is that when I first learned you know I made those connections too about oh this person's in a movie with this other person you start to kind of draw the parallels there I found out about the frat pack through your website it wasn't until doing research for this podcast that I realized it was you who made the frat pack <laughs> website which is so surreal because that was really influential for me growing up to kind of make those connections and to seek out other movies that had these people in them that maybe I wasn't aware of um, you know, I, I will go on record and say Envy is an underrated film. I don't know what your thoughts are on Envy or where it falls into it. but I haven't watched it in a while. I didn't love it yeah. when it came out. but There are definitely problems with it, but I think it really does have a heart that some of the other films don't because at, at its core, it's a film about friendship and forgiveness. Obviously, there is uh, the whole thing about Vaporize and all this sort of stuff, but Christopher Walken is so good in it. And there's just, there's little tiny moments that I think are good. Overall, I, the plot may not hold up too much these days, but I think that there are definitely moments moments in there that uh, that really are, are golden. But I think to parlay that into going to the office, I think the frat pack is really connected to the office because you gotta almost trace it back to the early 90s where you have like the Ben Stiller show where that really brought some of these people together and go into Larry Sanders and you know that's got Judd Apatow and Bob Odenkirk and some of these kind of people that are on the, the fringes there and then the cable guy comes around right and that you know Ben Stiller, Owen Wilson, uh, Jim Carrey like all of these guys kind of coming into the, the vogue and I think you can kind of trace the lineage of modern American comedy through the frat pack. I think it's, it's very interconnected so when The Office comes onto the scene in 2005 Steve Carell is just fresh from 40-Year-Old Virgin. He really wasn't the star that he is today. Right. I was just watching the Dana Carvey show, actually, which is really... That, yeah. I mean, that's another fascinating artifact from that era. Talk about a murderer's row of people oh that God. were... That, and impossible to believe that it went off the air so quickly yeah. with all this talent. It's incredible. You know, you even had guys like Charlie Kaufman writing for the Dana Carvey show. Steve Carell and Stephen Colbert, right. uh, Robert Schmeagel, all of these guys. And to be able to trace that and say like, okay, we went from there to The Daily Show and then, you know, into this and that. It's fascinating to me that so much of our modern comedy comes from this core group of people that really reshaped what we think comedy to be, which leads me into The Office because I think The Office was such an interesting show you know we take it for granted these days because everything's shot in mockumentary style you know right, the, the right. office has been copied endlessly by so many different sitcoms but at the time it was really unlike anything that was on television obviously there was the british version that came before it but the american version definitely had a heart that i don't think the british version had um you know david brent was very much like he was an asshole he was stern he he was very rude and like michael scott has those qualities but I think Steve Carell really brought a heart to Michael Scott that I don't think we saw in David Brent. And I think that really 
softened the character a bit and you know talk about season one to season two not only you know the the glow up that he had removing all the hair plugs and all that sort of stuff and kind of looking more uh relatable but also he was more empathetic in season two and moving forward i think that there was a dramatic shift that we saw yeah the, the writers have talked about that when they got the season two pickup they realized that they really needed to change the tone of that character in particular because he is very it's a very negative character in mm-hmm. most of season one and very obnoxious and it's like, why would I care? And it, it was, it, you know, I, I really don't like this most of the season one episodes, and it, they're they're so uncomfortable. And he, in particular, is so unrelatable, and it's just not. It's like you don't want to watch it because he's, yeah. he's such a you know a jerk. And to me, that the the key episode of that season two was the client episode. Oh yeah, yeah. Where you know how is this guy a manager? How is this guy in this role? Well, it actually turns out he can sell really good. Yeah. And he can win this big sale, break this guy down with his stupid jokes and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And at the end, he can get this deal. And it's like, all right, now we can see why he's a little bit more of a sympathetic character. Mm-hmm. And now when you learn maybe about his backstory, you know, growing up or whatever, it's like, mm-hmm. okay, he's this way because of these other things. Now you understand a little bit more. It's not just yeah. this sort of cliche overbearing boss who's just rude crude and obnoxious yeah and so yeah the, the, the fact that they softened his appearance they softened a little bit of his approach and then showed from time to time he's actually competent yeah was such an important part because you know it's great you know if you want to have this pure mode around you know writing or whatever when you know it's going to be 13 episodes over three years or whatever yeah but in the United States, on broadcast TV, you got to do 22, 23 episodes a year. Yeah. And you don't want it to be going, you know, one and done. You want it to be there for the long haul. You've got yeah. People don't watch shows for that long because they find the characters annoying. They It's because you fall in love with the character or you, yeah. you want to see what's happening next. For any of these long-running sitcoms, that's kind of the way it goes. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's so interesting looking at season one versus season two. I'm sure you know they originally looking at uh, putting the Dundies as the pilot. And it's just such an interesting, like, what if, if we didn't get... I mean, because the pilot is virtually a carbon copy of the British version. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting because it really wasn't until season two that they really started to find their footing and, like, find their voice for what the American version of The Office should be. So it's just fascinating to think, like, what if the Dundies was the pilot? And what kind of tone would that set for where the show is going? Um, because I think, you know, while there definitely were good parts in season one, I felt like season one tried so hard to be a clone of the British office that the cast will even talk about it. The fact they all felt like they were going to get canceled after season one. Like it really wasn't gaining the, the traction that it needed to. I have this quote from John Krasinski, which I think is really telling. He said, season one and two of The Office was about to be canceled, but it came up at the time that iTunes started selling video and people were paying for a show when they could have watched it for free. It kept us alive and gave us a run. You said that on on Fresh Air in 2016. And it's fascinating because you don't really think about it at the time because, you know, who goes on iTunes buys videos these days. But that actually pretty much saved The Office. You know, it was around season two and three that it was starting to kind of come up where it definitely was finding its voice, but it hadn't quite latched on to the full audience that, that it has today. That's what's so interesting about That's What She Said because obviously Matt started it in season three, you hopped on in season four. So it really felt like 
almost ahead of its time in the sense that there weren't too many podcasts that were doing blow-by-blow -blow episode breakdowns. There maybe were a couple here and there, but you have them for almost every TV show today. Right. Um, but that was almost ahead of the game where you, know, you didn't really have an episode-by-episode -episode breakdown. Um, so talk to me a little bit about what it was like were you watching the episodes as they would air? Would you rewatch them and take notes? I mean, what was your process like for that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, and it's interesting because that was another little bit of a revolution. I mean, I know TiVo was around then, but it was definitely not pervasive. Mm -hmm. And so part of the reason for buying the show was not just so you can own it and play it, you know, that. But if you want to rewatch it, you couldn't do it on broadcast mm -hmm. because, you know, it's... It airs at Thursday at nine o'clock, and then that's it. And maybe there's a rerun months later. It's so it again very different today uh, with our media. But so yeah, watch the show live. Sometimes we do uh, like a little live chat, whatever. And then yeah, rewatch it, take notes. What are the important themes? What are the good bits? Mm -hmm. What did I like? What I didn't like? It's, you know, it's easy enough to do that. Yeah. And then just to talk about it. And if you know, with podcasts, the good ones have a format. And for that type of show, it was very similar to what I did with the Frat Pack podcast. You know, you have an opening, you do a little thing, then you're going to go into the discussion of the show with audio clips. Then you're going to go into a news segment. So there's always something new that's happening yeah. with the show like that. You know, they have a new uh, merchandise thing or this actor is in a new movie or whatever. Mm -hmm. Always something to fill there. And then a little listener feedback section uh, where people could write in and you could oh thanks for that comment and you yeah. know that's a way to draw your audience in and all that sort of thing so it's it's not too hard to put all that together you know and make a good show out of it as long as it as long as what you're doing is reasonable you're not if you have bad voice that's a problem yeah. if you really can't speak well it's a problem I you know there's plenty of podcasts where the topic I love the topic I can't stand the voice of the, yeah. the, the host and it's <laughs> just one of those things it's yeah. like no offense man but don't dig your voice, and that's the whole point of this show is your voice. So if you don't yeah. like it, you got to move on. Totally. That's so funny because I actually really enjoyed your voice. That was actually one of the things I appreciated about the show. I mean, there's a lot of things I love about the show. Growing up, it was actually a show that I listened to during my summer job. It was one of the podcasts that really got me through those grueling hours. I just would put on the headphones and listen to these office episode breakdowns. And uh, the show itself was really influential, at least in my friend group, because there were a lot of people that were talking about the show a lot. If you're familiar with the term monoculture, yep. um, you know, we in this, you know, metamodern world, we don't really have monoculture as much. But at the time The Office was airing, The Office was my monoculture. Everyone in my family watched it. You know, youngest brother, my parents, everyone was watching it. I went to a small Christian high school, everyone was watching it. We're talking the students, the jocks, the, the nerds, everybody, the teachers were watching it. Everyone would talk about it the next day that an episode would air. Right. And having, that's what she said, was a great way to kind of parlay that excitement into more breakdowns and whatnot. And even just the idea of, like, the office news. I mean, it seems kind of laughable today that, you know, we were so involved with it. But it was so, it was so interesting because we didn't know oh, who's going to be the new boss? Or, you know, is there a guest star coming in? This and that. What's happening with Jim and Pam? Even like Office Tally, we would read quite often. Um, were you guys, uh, you guys would get some stuff on Office Tally? Was there any relationship there? Uh, no, not really. I mean, obviously, you know, obviously Office Tally was like the leading blog. And uh, I forget the name of the lady who was running it. But, you know, she was, she did a lot of work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she got connected to the, to the, uh, 
some of the actors and the show and was and made a couple little appearances on it. So, you know, sometimes that stuff can happen, but you got to work, you know, work real hard at it. Yeah. And we were uh, on the podcast side, we were definitely not into that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we did enough to do the thing, but, you know, we didn't really go to that extent. For me specifically as being the coast, it was sort of like, well, I can only do so much anyway, because, yeah. you know, on that's on that side. But, you know, credit to her and yeah, I mean, th- that became the de facto blog because, it, you know, it was the main one. And there was a few that would come and go, but she, Tan- Tanster, yeah. very, it, she stayed with it the whole time and, and hmm. really did a great job with it. So, yeah. Yeah, totally. There was such a fandom, I think, around the office at the time that it really lent itself to stuff like that's what she said, where there was this uh, outpouring of people who were passionate about the show and, and passionate about where Jim and Pam were headed and all of that sort of, you know, stuff. And I think it was the right place at the right time for you guys to come up with a podcast like that. Yeah. And, and, hit. and you know, NBC did a re- really good job with the show because they would put out um, deleted scenes. Yes. And other things where it would draw you in to learn more. And obviously, oh, you're going to go watch the deleted scenes? Well, maybe you want to buy the, you know, Dwight Bobblehead while you're here. <laughs> yeah. or World's Best Boss coffee mug. Great, you know. Yeah. You know, that was that was part of it too. It wasn't just like you watch the show, but now you have this wider universe of additional yeah. content to consume. Absolutely. Now you mentioned before, kind of talking about the British version of the show versus the American version. Obviously, the British version only ran for you know two seasons and the Christmas special, uh, very condensed. Versus the American version, you know, nine long seasons. Um, there's arguments to be made about the fact that maybe NBC ran with it a little too long and whatnot. I'm curious as to where you feel like, uh, was there a golden age of The Office? Do you feel like it fell off at a certain point? Or were you consistently really in- invested in it up until the very end? Well, um, obviously when it's when Steve Carell leaves, it's mm-hmm. a different show and not as good. Yeah. I happen to like the Robert California character mm-hmm. a lot and some of the things that were going on there less you know at least more so than other people i think may have Mm -hmm. Uh, but then yeah that last season after he left and they introduced new characters and some of the people are leaving it's like yeah all right time to pack it in yeah it's like all right and you know they're not it's not the first show that went maybe a season too long Mm -hmm. or a couple seasons too long Mm -hmm. for some shows yeah but it wasn't like it was like Terrible. Yeah, it was just a little bit not as good, and yeah. at some point you can only have so many of the same gimmicks or whatever. And, yeah. Um, sometimes when you add new characters to a show, um, it can really change the dynamic in in a good way. Mm-hmm. You know, Big Bang Theory would be a real good example of it, a long running show that really changed when they introduced some additional female characters mm-hmm. and sort of broadened the storylines and things like that. Whereas the characters they introduced later in The Office maybe weren't as compelling. Yeah. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, absolutely. I think The Office is an interesting example. And by the way, if you need to take that, you're welcome to. No, it's just stupid spam. <laughs> okay, text. gotcha. Um, I think, well, television in general, film, television, whatever, it exists at this uh, intersection of art and commerce. And I think it's, it's fascinating to look at it as a case study because obviously we watch a television show, it's entertainment. But what it actually is, is this business. It's a way for NBC Universal to take $500,000 and try to make a million dollars or whatever. And when you look at it like that, you realize that as much as we are entertained by these things, this is somebody's livelihood. These are people getting paid to do work, to act, to write, to direct, all these sorts of things. And when you have a show like The Office that's such a runaway success, 
there's the interest in the the studio to kind of milk that as long as they can. There's kind of the tendency for these uh, TV studios to not want to give up a hit. And so you sometimes have shows that may run on for a bit longer than maybe, you know, if the creators were driving the, the boat, they might be able to say, you know what, we feel satisfied with this ending. But NBC says, hey, we're getting a lot of great advertising revenue. Let's keep it rolling. And I think for me personally, I love, um, you know, the first four, maybe five seasons or so. They're really, really solid. I think that there are some dips in quality, even in the uh, later Steve Carell episodes. I have a personal opinion that there is the end of, towards the end of season five, there is a very specific shot I felt would have been the perfect series finale. And it's right after Michael Scott gets his paper company bought out by Dunder Mifflin. He comes back. He's the manager of the office. It ends the season five story arc of the whole Michael Scott paper company. And he's now back at Dunder Mifflin. And there's a shot where he leans his leg up on Jim's desk. And he like looks around at the office. And it's like everything's back to normal. And that could have been the end of the show. But then the last three episodes of season five had were totally like standalone bottle episodes. They had nothing to do with the rest of the storyline that had been happening. I'm not saying that it necessarily should have ended there, but if it did end there, it would have ended on a consistently high quality note. Yeah. I feel like the the later episodes were maybe a little bit more uneven. But as you mentioned, sometimes even uneven episodes of The Office are better than no office whatsoever. Exactly. And I think that there was still uh, some tread in those tires, so to speak, for them to continue creatively. I want to talk about Robert California a little bit because I have a theory about Robert California being such a controversial character. I personally think that Robert California was brought in and was perfect in his, you know, five or ten minutes that he was in the last episode of season seven. He was so well written, such a, um, an enigma of a character. You couldn't quite pin him down. The thing that I feel like people had trouble with in season eight, Robert California was that he was so well-written in that short blurb and trying to figure out, okay, how can we keep this going? How can we maintain this guy's personality of being an enigma throughout all of season eight? I felt like it was a tough challenge. In the same way that I felt like Dwight towards the later uh, later seasons was more cartoonish. It, you know, uh-huh. bringing in new writers and whatnot. You know, even just firing a gun in the office. Like, how is that not a fireable offense? It just seems like there are certain things that were maybe jumping a shark a little bit. Yeah. Where, you know, you felt like, okay, like, get it. It's, you know, it's a goofy, cartoony show. But I feel like it lacked some of the realism that the first couple of seasons had. Where it felt like it was like you were watching a documentary crew in an office. And towards the later seasons... It felt a little bit more like a TV show where, it, you know, the situations were so outlandish or, or what have you yep. that it kind of had that feel to it. I completely agree. I mean, I, it, yeah, it, Dwight in particular, very cartoonish uh, towards sort of the second half of uh, the, the run of the show, that's for sure. Yeah. So I'm curious, have you, do you know about the Superfan episodes? Have you seen any of them? You know, I saw those on Peacock and I thought, eh, I don't really, I, you know, I know enough. And, you know, maybe ask me in 2008, I might have mm-hmm. a different opinion, but I like watching the episodes. I go back and I, you know, rewatch them occasionally, but mm-hmm. it's not like, it's not a thing that I'm rewatching like all the time. Yeah. Like some people would watch, I don't know, Star Trek episodes over <laughs> yeah. and over and over and over again, you know, or yeah. whatever, right? Definitely. It seems like there's a, um, the show's really latched on with like millennials and I want to say like Gen Z, where mm-hmm. liking The Office is almost a personality trait. Yeah. It's like, uh, you know, Billie Eilish is a very famous example of like somebody who's like super devoted to The Office. And I don't really know her music too much, but that's like one of the small factoids I know is that she's yeah. so into The Office. 
and I think that there's a lot of people who watch it just all the time. And I think there's something to be said about television that's on in the foreground versus television that's on the background. For a lot of people, it's comfort food. It's, you know, it's something they're familiar with. But I would challenge you and say, at some point, take a look at those super fan episodes only because I'm really interested in the way it's all assembled. So as you probably know, made for network television, you gotta have a tight 22 minute, you know, mark. And obviously with a show like The Office, you're gonna have a lot of extra content that could not fit in our original airings. So that's where you get things like the deleted scenes and whatnot. But what they've put together with the super fan episodes is something totally unexpected in the sense of it is The Office as it was meant to be shown because you don't have any of the cuts for network television. It is how it was written, it was how it was directed, and basically some of these episodes go from 22 minutes to 34 minutes. You know, we're talking a good, you know, 50% larger, some of these episodes. And what you notice is it's not just deleted scenes. It's some of these moments that you know and love, but they hang on for like a beat or two longer. It's like, it's almost like an alternative take of something that you know and love. And I can't, I'm hard pressed to think of another thing like this in film or television where there's something that we've seen X number of times, you know, over and over again. And then all of a sudden we get to see totally different versions of that same thing. I, I guess the closest would be if you know um, what they did with Anchorman. Uh, they did like the, the supersized jokes and whatnot. Wake up Ron Burgundy. Yeah, yeah. so they had Wake Up Ron Burgundy and then for the Anchorman 2, yes. they also had the they replaced all the jokes or whatever where right. basically they had so much improv that they were able to cut together a new cut yeah. of the film. So I guess those are maybe the closest analogies there. I guess. You know, something like, um, well, Blade Runner, right? How yeah, many different too. versions have yeah, we got of the that? the final cut, the director's you know, and, you know, and whether or not this. there's this, that, or the other thing, yeah. you know, in this version, he's definitely a replicant. In this version, he's definitely not. What? Yeah, you yeah, know, like, totally. <laughs> whatever. Yeah. So, you know, I think, you know, the film or TV, really, that that is, the editing could really make a big difference in terms of yeah. um, tone or whatever. And then, yeah, so, okay. I yeah. get your I point. Mean, yeah, the, totally. And super I just fan. think it's, it's really interesting because, obviously, I've seen some of the deleted scenes before, but these are the deleted scenes in the context they were meant to be seen. And I think that totally changes at least my perception of the show. And moving forward, I honestly think that if I were to rewatch the show, I would probably go with the super fan episodes only because I feel like we're getting the full story. It definitely feels more like a documentary crew following an office because there are more moments for the characters to breathe. And there's there's Jim and Pam moments that we don't we didn't see before. There is Michael and uh, and Jan moments that we didn't see before. And like little tiny things about these characters that kind of flush them out. We hear more about where Creed came from and what he was up to and all of these different things that I feel like were cut for time. Yeah, and sure, maybe not all of them are gold, uh, you know, because obviously there's some of them were cut maybe because they weren't as funny as some of the other things. But right. at the end of the day, I do think it's a really interesting example of being able to shoot a television show the way you want it to be shot, handing it over to the studio, and they're like, okay, well, we clearly need to cut some of this down. And so I think we obviously, in the era of streaming, don't really see that as much because Netflix shows can be whatever the length they want. You know, right. you, you have the opportunity, you know, I think... And they don't have to be the exact same length for every episode either. Oh, exactly, so yeah. So this one's 35, this one's 29, okay. Yeah. It just, it can be whatever it wants. You know, the latest season of Ted Lasso, some of the shows are 32 minutes, some are 43 minutes. You know, it's like they have such a wide range of times. And I think another great example is Curb Your Enthusiasm. That also in the in the new seasons for HBO are just like, yeah, sure, we'll do a 40-minute episode on something. Whereas, you know, they used to be pretty tight at, you know, around 30 minutes. Right, right. Um, 
So I think it's interesting that in the era of streaming, we kind of get the director's cut of these TV shows, essentially, and the, the curtain is peeled back a little bit where we get to witness these these smaller moments that you may not have been able to see on TV just because of the timing. And of course, watching without ads is also a huge plus. So of there's course. definitely some nice, nice things to that. But the thing about the Superfan episodes is NBC is not transparent about where these are coming from. We don't know who's putting them together. I don't know if this is like they're bringing back the directors and editors or if there's some poor intern at Peacock that has to put these things together. But I know they're doing them slow rollouts. They have the first four seasons available as the super fan episodes, but they're going to be doing them for five through nine. They just don't have them out yet. And it's my theory that they're trying to keep you subscribed to Peacock. So they're uh -huh. only going to give you uh -huh. breadcrumbs rather than put all of them out. But I also would imagine it takes a decent amount of time to whittle these episodes together simply because you do have to think about how the episode originally was, where does this deleted scene fit into it? How am I going to edit with the pacing? I would love to know a little bit more about how that you know is, is produced, but NBC Peacock has been really tight-lipped about it. So it's like it's kind of interesting because nobody knows exactly who's involved with these oh, episodes and how they're put together. But when you actually watch them, it does feel like I'm getting a perspective that I wasn't able to get before. And it feels like a little bit of a different version than what we saw on TV. And I, I don't know, I'm just incredibly fascinated by looking through to the past with the modern lens that we have now and being able to see things differently than what we saw at the time. And I think The Office is a great example. You know, Steve Carell has talked about how you can never make The Office again, you know, just based on where we've progressed in terms of our culture, how we use language and all those sorts of things. I think there definitely are some aspects about The Office that are pretty cringy today, but I think that was the point, you know. It was really meant to be uncomfortable talking about some of these things. And Michael Scott clearly is a guy that would be canceled today, but I think yeah. there was a certain charm that he had back in the day, I think, that uh, still is, is interesting. It's kind of crazy how much the culture can kind of change on some of these things in not that many uh, years, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the, like, I'm sure you're aware, there was a, a blackface situation in one of those yep. episodes, and it's now it's out of anything you can consume unless you have the old DVDs or something, and mm -hmm. it's just like, you know wow, this really, this blackface thing really hung around for a while yeah. and it really wasn't a big deal mm -hmm. Yeah, they, until the last couple of years. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's it kind of, you're kind of embarrassed that, like, it took that long, I guess. Yeah, totally. There were several episodes of 30 Rock that did it too and they had to pull yeah, those as yeah. well. And it's interesting because I think there was a certain... There was a certain attitude that comedy writers had where, oh, we're doing it ironically or, oh, we're doing it to show how bad it is and so that's okay. Well, and and... and in the specific case of The Office, that is exactly what they were doing. Mm -hmm. And I think that there is something to be said there's something to be said for that sort of mindset. Mm -hmm. um, maybe easier to execute in a you know, mumblecore film than it would be in <laughs> a network television series, though. Yeah, absolutely. I think there are definitely a lot of aspects of The Office that may be considered problematic today, but I don't... I don't know. I think the charm of the show was that we knew it was bad. We knew how bad Michael Scott was. We know that this is unacceptable behavior. And you empathize with those who are in the office who are forced to deal with this because nobody wants to have a boss like Michael Scott. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think if you go back to any of these popular shows or even went to the ladies VCR museum and yeah. pulled some random episode of some ABC comedy from 1979 or whatever, you know, 
there'd be all kinds of stuff that isn't really not to anybody's taste these days. And, you know, Friends had a little bit, but that's the 90s. And then if mm-hmm. you go, you know, go back yeah. for, far enough, it's like, oh, that's kind of not so cool what yeah. that was happening there. And that's just how the culture changes. Totally. So I'm curious because in the past I have talked a little bit about historical revisionism where, you know, an episode of something may contain something offensive. So it gets pulled when shows hit Disney. Sometimes they're censored. What's your take on all that? Do you have an opinion on, you know, censoring of these old old shows and whatnot? Yeah, I mean, I think in general, I'm not not particularly inclined for being heavy handed about that sort of stuff unless it is really egregious mm-hmm. you know and i think part of it's the context if it's a film maybe is a little bit different than a tv show i don't know maybe but by and large I'd, I'd be erring on the side of it was what it was and if you want to watch it why should i care mm-hmm. it's not like you know i don't think there's impressionable youth today that are watching some vintage video or movie or something like that and like oh now it's cool to call him a chink you know yeah, or whatever yeah. right i mean it's it's not how this works today yeah, totally but back then that was the joke or whatever yeah. right absolutely i think it's interesting you know studying media in general as kind of it's a part of our society it's a part of our culture it's emblematic of the values that we held at the time and i think it's it's interesting when you trace the lineage of media you know you look at the early looney tunes cartoons you know there's some really racist stuff in oh, there yeah. Oh, yeah. even they're doing some remasterings of the old little rascals and some of that stuff has some pretty objectionable yeah. racist yeah. content in it but i think it's important to be able to look at that and to say this is how far we've progressed as a society of uh, and i think i personally hold the opinion that if we do censor or lose this sort of stuff we're not going to erase the mistakes of the past, but we are going to prevent future generations from learning from them. Right, exactly. And I think that's kind of the key is that with streaming services today, they're so obsessed with trying to sanitize everything and trying to you know, make it as family friendly as possible. And I think there's a place for that. And I think that comes from the parent, you know, being able to say, this is appropriate for you to watch, this is not. I feel like when the streaming services are the ones doing the censoring, that makes it a little bit more tough to be able to look back through history and to see what we've amassed as a society, good and bad. But I'm curious for you particularly, where are you watching stuff? Are you stream stuff? Do you have Blu-rays? What do you what do you like to do? You know, I'm pretty much doing the streaming thing now. It's mm-hmm. it's I have had Blu-rays and DVDs, but I just haven't bought anything new in at least two or three years mm-hmm. probably now. And it seems like such a pain to have to go and find it and put it in. It's like ridiculous how yeah. you know that was no big deal. But so yeah, and part of it maybe is because I'm lazy. So that's, yeah, yeah, totally. You know, these services are great, and you can watch. You know, oh hey, the Deadpool. Hey, yeah. Let's watch it. You know, like yeah, like okay, why not? And, exactly. And, you know, oh, I can see it's 90 minutes. Perfect. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. For tonight. Yeah. There have been too many times where, at least me personally, I've had that choice paralysis where there's so many options that I feel like I spend more time scrolling than I do actually picking out something to watch. Uh, do you ever feel like there's sometimes too many choices out there? I mean, I suppose in the moment it can be that way. Mm-hmm. If you are you want to see something and maybe it's not, no, it's not quite what I'm in the mood for. Okay, not quite. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I've always wanted to watch that, but it's two and a half hours. Like, okay, not tonight. Like, sure, that mm-hmm. happens from time to time. But I think more choice is good, and assuming you have the means to subscribe to the different services, of course. Yeah. So, in competition among the services, I think, is a good thing. Yeah. So, one of the things I did not mention up top is that I also run, on the side, a nonprofit library. So, long-time listeners of the show uh, will know that this podcast is produced by the Golden Age Collection, 
uh, which is the 501c3 nonprofit that I founded a few years ago around this digital library that I've started to curate. So it's film, it's television, it's music, and it's music videos. And it, for me, it's an attempt to catalog and preserve our past. So it's actually, these hard drives right here, we're talking around 150 terabytes wow. of information. So it's digital collection. And all past guests have been given access to the collection in an attempt to free associate with titles that may resonate with them. But I wanted to give you the remote here and see okay. what you might be able to find. So basically, if you're familiar with uh, Apple TV here, yep. you can go to TV shows and movies. And really what we want to do is just have you browse around, see if there's anything that you want to talk about, things that maybe inspired you, things that maybe you don't like. I'm just kind of curious, if you go to TV shows, the posters may take a second to load, but yeah, wherever you want to start, basically we've got stuff all the way from the you know 40s and 50s, all the way up through to modern things. And really I try to catalog as much obscure stuff as well as popular stuff as possible. But uh, previously we had to do this over Plex, and Plex really was not the best uh, medium for this because of the fact there was such a lag. In our internet here, there is still a bit of a lag with the posters loading, but... Uh, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, it's like just something like here, like Boardwalk Empire, right? Mm -hmm. When that show was on, it was kind of a big deal, but it's almost forgotten now, right? It's yeah. not like The Sopranos, where it's like an all-time HBO classic or whatever, yeah. but, you know... It, someone's looking for something new and you know that's a six or something seasons maybe yeah you know you could uh, maybe do worse than than to revisit some of these older uh, shows well, i think boardwalk empire is such an interesting show because you know terrence winter very skilled director martin scorsese directed as well it's one of those prestige shows that really i feel like what you said it almost got lost to time a little bit you know in the era of peak television where there's more television being produced than ever before we sometimes have very slickly produced shows that are, you know, high budgets and whatnot that may make a splash for a little bit while they're there, but it seems like a lot of people either haven't seen it or, you know, aren't really talking about it as much. Yeah, you know, it's always a bummer when a show that you like doesn't make it. Yeah. And it, it gets canceled after, in the old days, 13 episodes or yeah. one season or maybe two. Um, we're looking here at Hello Ladies. Yeah. It was a show that I really liked. That's a great one. On HBO with Stephen Merchant, you know, yeah, of at course. the office. It's so interesting, this genre of television, this sort of person in L.A., romantic comedy type show. Mm -hmm. Love is another one that's in this thing. Yep. Insecure yep. is in that genre, too, to me. You know, it's it, there's so many of these shows, and you could... You know, if you like that sort of thing, I think it's th those are really interesting to me. Uh, yeah. You know, not having really spent much time in L.A., you get a sense of place that is maybe a little bit more glamorous than um, when we visit L.A. Absolutely. Proper. Yeah. Especially if you've grown up in the Bay Area and you always have a, you know, an us versus them thing, yeah, which, 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 which of course is always a one-way thing. It's not. Yeah. It's not coming from L.A. <laughs> yeah. So then, uh, last thing I'll, I'll I think on this topic, this this is interesting. The show. I'm sorry. Yes. It, it's a it's a really interesting and it's such a sad story about mm -hmm. how the show ended. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. I think that this is a good example of how streaming has really changed media consumption in the last 10 years where mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, the show would be on something and it, it was what it was. Mm -hmm. But this was a show that during its run uh, was on like a True TV, yeah, which True TV, is an obscure-ish yeah. net cable network. Mm -hmm. Used to do uh, like true crime. And they just, you know, in the mid-2010s mm -hmm. started to branch off into comedy. Right, right. And the, the broadcast version didn't have profanity, but you could yep. watch on demand with the profanity. Yep. 
And then it got picked up by Netflix and became much more widely seen and people mm-hmm. really tapped into it. And it kind of became a little bit of a hit in its second and third season after it went on to a more broad service like Netflix. Yeah. And then if they were filming their next season when COVID came and then it didn't... It's, it's such it, a shame. It didn't make it. it, it so... Anyway, I think some examples here of where, you know, as people go back and revisit some of these things, these even some shows like this, which are not so old, mm-hmm. that are modern classics, if you want to use yeah. that term. And, you know, then it's just about finding your friends. Like, was Idiot Sitter any good or not? I don't know. Yeah. Um, Stephen Root was great in it. I love Stephen Root. Well, so, well, yeah, he, but, he's a gem. But, you know, it's like, oh, I've never heard of it. But, yeah. you know, you go either, you know, if, you're, if it's available on some service or... If you um, you know look it up, then you could see you know oh oh I like that guy and yeah. maybe you know I watch it or whatever check it out yeah so yeah I mean it's it, and then going back in time it's always interesting to me when so and so was on some show in the 70s or 80s or whatever mm-hmm. and being able to revisit some of those series on some of these services oh yeah especially when you got you know these serialized shows in the 70s and 80s. If you wanted to be an actor or an actress in that time, you almost always had to go through one of these shows. Right. So it's amazing they have such a, a cavalcade of stars sometimes that at the time they were pretty obscure. You know, nobody cared. You know, Ben Stiller was in an episode of Miami Vice. You know, and things right, like right. that. Emo Phillips as well. And it's like just interesting to see they obviously would go on to have much bigger and broader careers and whatnot. But yeah, it's kind of this artifact of a specific era in television history. I do want to talk a little bit about I'm sorry because. So Andrea Savage came out. Do you know about uh, SF Sketchfest? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. I'll listen to they, your they episode had, about it. Okay, awesome. Yeah. So they they had um, one with Andrea Savage. She came out and talked about the making of I'm Sorry, and it was so interesting because of the uphill battle that she had to face uh, sometimes to get standard practices on board with some of the stuff that they were doing. But yeah, season one, season two, really personal stories, kind of being told in in obviously a really funny way and. And I'm sorry, in particular, is such an interesting, you know, talk about comedy. It's, you know, Will Ferrell, Adam McKay, executive producing, along mm-hmm. with all the guys from The Lonely Island. And Andrea Savage has been on stuff. Like, I didn't know really who she was until I saw the show. And then you go back and you're like, oh, my God, she was in so many. She's a stepbrother. She was in right. uh, Man Bites Dog and, like, all these great shows that at the time I didn't really put the pieces together. Um, but as you mentioned, you know, they had finished writing season three. They were producing it. COVID hit and they were going to hopefully come back and then True TV said, you know what, we're done. And if you know much about what was happening at True TV, um, do you know Adam Ruins Everything, Adam Conover? I don't know if that rings a bell. That show, along with I'm Sorry and Those Who Can't, there was this whole new generation of True TV comedy, uh, At Home with Amy Sedaris is another great one. And they were really building out their comedy, their individual comedy lineup, and then they got bought out. So they were actually, True TV was the whole AT&T Time Warner merger. Oh, okay. That basically was the end of True TV's original comedy because of the executives trying to rein things in, cut budgets. They basically cut almost everyone at True TV that had greenlit these shows. So all of a sudden, anyone who worked at True TV who was working on original comedy just immediately got the ax. And so talk about the implications of streaming and, and what this does. Obviously, streaming can give new eyeballs to shows. You know, when this show went on Netflix, all of a sudden, people who didn't have True TV now could watch it. But you also have the flip side where if there is a merger that takes place and they are looking to reduce headcount, all of a sudden, some of the people who are responsible for making these shows can also lose their jobs and we lose some of these shows. Right, right. Uh, so it's kind of a double-edged sword, which is too bad. Yeah, you know? and Netflix isn't exactly known for letting a series run for too long. So that's... Too bad. Well, you want to talk brutal. Did you ever hear of uh, Mr. Corman, the new one from uh, Just Gordon-Levitt on Apple TV Plus? 
He wrote and directed and starred in almost every episode. And that was a particularly cruel cancellation because Apple released it every week. They would do weekly episodes. Uh They didn't allow you to binge. But it was a show that was shot almost like uh, independent films. So you almost needed to watch them together in order to really appreciate what was going on. The day the finale aired... Apple canceled it. That is so cruel because you didn't even get an opportunity for people to finish watching the show as a standalone, collect those numbers to see if you get a season two. It's like, just hold off a few weeks. Why why bring the axe to it right away? And I know some people don't watch those shows that come out weekly yeah. until the end been yeah. trashed them all together so yeah that's yeah. a bummer it's, it's a real shame but you know that's the era in which we live is that there's so much content out there we only have so many hours in the day to watch something right I mean I personally struggle with that too with having a collection like this I don't always I recognize that there are sometimes there are more things to watch than what the time that we have in this life right so you kind of have to make decisions at a certain point and try to figure out what's worth your time what's not worth your time and especially with how many shows, you know, there's sometimes, oh, there's a great show, hour-long episodes, 22 episodes a season for six seasons or something like that, you know. It's an enormous commitment of time that can be kind of daunting. Right. Well, the great thing, though, about the digital age is that now there's a way for you to digitize this stuff. I mean, obviously, YouTube is a good resource for this sort mm-hmm. of thing, too, especially on the music side. So, yeah, I mean, we live in it, in it's like a, an embarrassment of wealth in terms yeah. of content to watch, and it's not just the new stuff, but even the old stuff too i think it's Mm -hmm. great yeah absolutely you mentioned you had watched the deadpool recently what movies have you been gravitating towards are there anything that you've really been enjoying a certain era a certain actor or director anything that sparks your interest as of late you know honestly i've been not doing much in the film stuff because the tv stuff has just been sort of more interesting to me yeah because the, the quality of these shows on HBO, Netflix, all that kind of stuff, I mean, it's cinematic quality, yeah. except it's eight hours long. Yeah. And, you know, get into it. Why not? So, mm-hmm. you know, all of the streaming stuff, there's almost too many to mention, but I, I mean, I just started watching Reacher. I thought that was great. Mm-hmm. You know, so, I mean, this it just it's out there. I love yeah. it. You know, it's so... Totally. And, and the film stuff, uh, not, not as much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one thing I just struggle with because I recognize there are so many great television shows and so many great films. It's like, what do I go into? Because part of me says, oh, well, a film I can just watch in one sitting and check that off the list. But then TV shows, you're like, wow, this is, you know, a couple seasons long, but everyone's talking about it. And it's like, it's so good. And the ability for you to connect with a character over many seasons, I feel like, is something that TV has an advantage of over film. Right. You're only with the character for a short amount of time. Have there been any shows that you've been watching that have really, um, you mentioned Reacher is, is one of them, maybe newer shows that you thought were really interesting, or maybe ones that you were kind of disappointed by? Well, I mean, Ted Lasso is one that I've been pretty, you know, interested in and really got into. Um, Maybe this is a good example of, like, I've seen so much, it hasn't, like, none of it has really resonated with no, me. I feel the same way, and it requires me to actually sometimes scroll through things to, oh, I did see that show. I, I right, you know, and right. you remember it. It's something about it. It's right. so funny. But, uh, yeah, I've always been an HBO person, so, you know, like, Insecure just ended. I thought it was yeah. really great. The stuff that Kirby Enthusiasm is doing, you know, is, you know, it's like, any point in time, those are, those shows just ended their yeah. run for this uh, recent period, so yeah. that's come to mind. Ask me in six months, it'll probably be something yeah, else. Yeah, totally. 
I think HBO is a great example of a channel that really has put forth such an effort to change the medium of television. I'm reading a book right now called Tinderbox. It just came out. It's basically the, the whole story of HBO, kind of its origins and the kind of cable wars all the way up through like modern programming today. And it's so interesting, obviously, the connection with like getting films on television back in a time where you really didn't have unedited movies on television. Right. Now up until its original programming and everything. And there was such a rich history of programming at HBO that really changed the game. You know, even early stuff like Tales from the Crypt, all the way up through like Larry Sanders and kind of into the 90s and whatnot. I think that there is just such a, a desire to break the mold at HBO. And obviously as you got into Oz, The Sopranos, The Wire, all that sort of stuff, there was such a uh, focus on the cinematic element. And, you know, obviously it's been talked to death at this point, but I think that merging of like television with cinema and kind of blurring the lines between the two and thinking about these shows, you know, one of the advantages that we have now is seeing them in HD. You know, back when these shows uh -huh. aired, you were watching them on a cathode ray tube TV. You right. have scan lines in there and whatnot. And majority of the time, it was full screen. So I think one of the interesting things now is obviously with these new scans, they choose a widescreen image. And so we're actually seeing these shows in a different aspect ratio than what we saw originally. Sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. Like Kirby Enthusiasm is one of those shows that I feel like it's actually worse only because the original show, if, as you know, was shot digital video. And digital video obviously has a limit to the quality, but the way that the show was shot, it was framed for, you know, four by three. It was a yeah. full screen show. Yeah. For whatever reason, when HBO did the remaster, they decided to go widescreen. So you're literally just cropping the frame, and oh, when you watch yeah, it on HBO Max, Larry's head is like, you know, yeah. you don't really see the top of it. And there's so many examples of shows like that where it's like, Really, is it that hard to put this out in its original aspect ratio? Apparently it, just, it is. That's I just terrible. don't understand. I don't know. It drives me crazy. Now, granted, there are some shows, like I think Freaks and Geeks is a great example because that was a show shot on 35mm film. And Shout Factory a few years ago went back and remastered the original film. Yep. And you now got it in full screen and widescreen. I did a quick comparison and you really don't lose too much off the top, but you really do get a wider... Well, you yeah, know, shot I mean, there. Whatever the native aspect ratio is, is what it should be. Yeah. So if it was shot in 4x3 and there's no other thing, mm -hmm. that's what it's got to be, yeah. in my opinion. And yeah, if you shot on 35-millimeter film and you weren't expecting to do much on the sides, mm -hmm. unless there's something like a microphone sticking out or something like that, mm -hmm. that's what you should use. Yeah. I mean, you've got the source. Why not? Yeah, exactly. It seems like a no-brainer to put that out there. It's fascinating because there are some shows where you do get stuff like Malcolm in the Middle as an example, because there are a couple of shots where you do actually see crew standing off to the side. In one, there's actually a stunt double for Dewey. And so you see this like look-alike. He looks like the kid on the show, but he's not the kid on the show. It's kind of a surreal moment, but they obviously didn't realize that that footage was going to be used as widescreen. Well, they kind of it framed for the full screen shot. It seems like if you're going to remaster it, it shouldn't be too hard to do a little, do a little erase of something like that. <laughs> Absolutely. The crazy thing is I feel like the people who are in charge of remastering, or I should say the studios who are in charge of remastering, think that Black Bar is the enemy. So whenever anything was shown in full screen on its original airing, there's this intention of like, oh, people aren't going to watch this because it's got the bars on the side. Another famous example is Seinfeld. The Seinfeld mm -hmm. remaster was another one of those things where you had it on 35 millimeter film. You, you have the ability to just keep it the way that it is, but for whatever reason, you decided to go for that crop. And again, same as Curb Your Enthusiasm, you're losing 
some of the parts of the picture and it just seems so arbitrary you yeah. know it's like you could have done this properly but you chose to go with this version well you know I mean Seinfeld uh, is there much money in re-release I don't know I mean, yeah that, <laughs> yeah that's the thing that's so stupid about it it's well, like look you have to spend some money but mm-hmm. it's Seinfeld. It's yeah. not some obscure show that no one's going to watch. Exactly. I Do the right thing. Seinfeld went for $500 million to Hulu, I want to yeah, say, I mean, the streaming rights. Ridiculous. Absurd amount of money. The, the show has been off the air for, you know, 25 years or so. Yeah. And we're still, I mean, there's the staying power of some shows like that that I feel like have only grown in popularity, as we mentioned before at The Office. Yeah. And I think that there is a rewatchability to some of these things. And for people, it's like an old baseball glove. You know, it's something that fits well. They Sure, it may not be challenging their artistic viewpoints or whatever, but it's comfort food. And it's a way for people to feel at home. And I think, at least with Seinfeld and The Office, is that these shows are now airing in syndication, but there is an advantage to watching them in order in the sense that there's a story arc. Oh, yeah. And I think that, you know, even with Seinfeld, obviously some of these are bottle episodes but when they've got I think it's season season, three, season four, four yeah, is the, where is the, is the best season yeah, yeah season that, four where they're whole, pitching their own show yeah, yeah it's I mean, just a work of art one of the best seasons of TV yeah ever. it's just very meta you know yeah. it's like it's it's really well done and growing up in the 90s obviously Seinfeld was on all the time but I didn't really get into it until I got older because, you know, you say, oh, this is a show for adults. I want to watch a kid's show or yeah, whatever. Yeah. You didn't really appreciate it. You're like, no, this is really groundbreaking comedy. There's almost like this punk ethos to it because, you know, no hugging, no emotions, no learning, anything like that. So they really wanted to break the mold. Yeah, well, and some topics that you can't believe were on TV. So yeah, that, exactly. That a classic classic show for sure yeah absolutely. absolutely well i don't want to take up too much of your time but i wanted to see if there's anything else you'd like to plug obviously you've got your your awesome website search for ultimate mai tai yep i mean really most of what i'm doing in that space is on the blog ultimate mai or on instagram as ultimate mai tai so i'm just posting almost every day about what i'm doing and sometimes it's rum reviews sometimes it's tiki bar reviews you know mai tai recipes etc and so if you're into that stuff you might want to check it out but otherwise i'm uh, glad to have uh, the opportunity to have a discussion with you about all this stuff and uh, go back in time and talk about some of our my favorite shows and, and other things so awesome. thanks for having me kevin so such a pleasure to have you on thank you so much for for coming out you're always welcome to come back anytime you want to and if anybody wants to get to you know, follow you on Twitter or on Instagram, do you have a handle? So Ultimate My Tie on Instagram is really the best place. Okay, fantastic. Thanks so much and uh, have a great afternoon. Take care, everyone. And that was my conversation with Kevin Crossman. Thanks again to Kevin for dropping by my makeshift podcast studio for this interview. Kevin's Instagram has been a goldmine of cool places to visit here in the Bay and beyond. He just got back from Hawaii, so be sure to follow him at Ultimate Mai Tai to see all of the cool places he visited. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram at AWOL. That's at A-W-O-E-L-L. If you've listened this far, you probably like the show, so consider rating Metamodernism and writing a review. As much as I hate self-promotion, Ratings and reviews help this show to be picked up by the algorithms and perhaps reach more listeners. The music you heard on today's show was Polynesian Village Love Theme by the Tikiaki Orchestra, Ualike Noalike by Johnny Poi and the Oahu Islanders, and Noche Peligroso by Monster Rally. Links to all of the music can be found in the podcast show notes. For those of you who love the music episodes, I'm already hard at work compiling 2022's Best New Music, 
but I'm hoping to release at least a few more interviews before those music episodes drop at the end of the year. Thanks again for listening, and I'll be back soon with more Metamodernism.